0: Well, he was betrayed by one close to him, one that he loved for silver, given to the hands of Wicked men, these men mocked him and ridiculed him and hated him. Ultimately, he chose death. God used his death to bring justice. I'm talking, of course, about Samson. And the time period of the judges illustrates for us that though the old covenant people of God were outside of Egypt, they stood in desperate need of one greater than the judges one greater than Samson to truly free them turning in your bibles to exodus 6 now i'm not going to have time to develop this point but i want in light of what we did tonight i want to make a quick point exodus 6 is before the institution of the passover Well, one of the things that the Passover did, there's many things that the Passover pointed to, of course, but one of the things that the Passover did is when you're eating, it only happened one time in Egypt, so the rest of the time you're having the Passover when you're you're eating the Passover and the children are wondering what's going on, well, one of the things that the head of the family would remind the family is, hey, we're eating this as a reminder that we're not in Egypt anymore. We're not under bondage anymore. course, the Passover and the Lord's Supper are not the same, but the Passover points us towards Christ, our ultimate Passover lamb. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper tonight, we're being reminded of that. We're not, as it were, in Egypt anymore. We're not under bondage anymore. Why? Because God's power delivers from slavery. That is tonight's sermon. Well, we'll do what we did last night. I feel like you responded well to that, and I ask you to stand as we read Exodus chapter 6, verses 6, 7, and 8. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this text tonight. We pray, as, as the text before me on this pulpit says, that we would see Jesus tonight. Help us to understand the great power of the gospel that rescues us from the bondage of slavery to sin. Let us be a holy people. Let us show briar and azel and texas and arkansas and the united states of america and the the whole wide world that king jesus makes a holy people frees us we pray that the spirit would be here tonight in a special way to bless to encourage to convict to quicken all for the glory of christ thank you for this meeting lord thank you for this church we pray in jesus name amen you may be seated. Paul says in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. God's power is displayed on Calvary. It's displayed in our Lord's resurrection. It's displayed in the regeneration of hearts and creating new creatures as we saw last night. But it's also displayed, the power of God is also displayed in delivering God's people from slavery to sin. The Bible says in Matthew one twenty one that Jesus came to save his people from their Sins in the plural. Sins. He didn't only come to save us from sin, although that's true. He also came to save us from our sins. Sin shall no longer be your master. Jesus came to save us from our sins, and God's power delivers us from slavery. In Luke 4, Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. He reads from Isaiah 61. Part of that says he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And friends, if you think that this text means physical oppression, then you forget the depravity and the mastery of sin. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ brings with it liberation from the tyranny of sin. It's a difficult illustration, but imagine for a moment a man whose wife is caught in a prostitution ring. He goes Liam Neeson on everybody. But when he gets to her, he simply hands her a card. It says one day he's going to come back and rescue her from her captors. So just keep living on in captivity until that day comes. Friends, this is not the gospel. The, the love of God is not merely plentiful, but it's also powerful. God's love is, is efficacious in that it, all that means is that it brings out its intended desire. I love my children, but my love is not efficacious. I, my, love can't, my love can't bring everything, my children, that I want. I just love them, but God's love is, is efficacious in the sense that it, it brings about what He desires for His people. It ransoms the church. It calls her to her husband. It brings her to life. It cleans her up. It frees her from the bondage of her sins. She is a slave to sin no more. God's power delivers us from slavery. Now, all these passages I've mentioned are from the New Testament, so why are we in the Old Testament tonight? It's not my conference, and Brother Randall assigned this passage. But really, our passage tonight, you need to understand this. I need to make this very, very clear. We'll talk more if we need to in the Q&A. But this is a real historical event. It's not allegory. It's not a, not a parable. What we're reading tonight is historical narrative. Yet, the Bible itself tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 11, for example, now these things happened to them, that is Israel as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So that is, I agree with Joel Beeky who says this, God has recorded Israel's history for our learning, admonition, and encouragement. What we see in Israel's history, and particularly here in this Exodus narrative, is not only real history, but also, it is real history, but it is also a picture of the greater redemption that we have in Christ. What God has done physically with Israel serves as a type of what God has done spiritually for us in Christ. Let's reread this passage. Say therefore, verse 6, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This text is so rich, so applicable to Christians today. It's a shame that men like Andy Stanley in our day tell us we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. He's not reading his Bible rightly. And so I hope to show you why tonight. First, let's consider the reality of slavery. Number one, the reality of slavery. So, verse 6 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Slavery here for the, for the Israelites, it was not imagined. They weren't just like, I feel like I'm in slavery. No, no. They were enslaved. It was real, and the Bible says that they were under the burdens of the Egyptians. Slavery is a real burden. In the New Testament, Jesus says in John 8:34, "Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin." The Israelites were under the burden of the Egyptians, but they failed to fully understand that they were also under the burdens of their own sins. Mankind fallen in Adam and apart from Christ remains under the burden of and in slavery to sin. Sin is a burden for at least four reasons. I'll mention those. One, it's a burden because it's an attack on the glory of God. Sin seeks to take from God all that is rightly His. His worship, His loyalty, His rightful rule. This is why all creation right now, Paul says, is groaning. Because sin is an affront to the glory of God and things are not the way they're supposed to be. Secondly, it's a burden because it's a destruction to society. It's destructive to society. Sin destroys nations and cultures. It seeks to turn God's good order on its head. It only leaves in its wake death and destruction look at our society today. Thirdly, it brings about personal misery. It's an affront to the glory of God. It's it's destructive to society. Sin is a burden. Thirdly, because it brings about personal misery. As the late R.G. Lee said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Fourthly, sin is a burden because it requires justice. I believe it was A.W. Pink that said something along the lines of, now listen carefully here, sin cannot be forgiven. What he meant was it cannot be forgiven in the sense that it must either be atoned for or punished for eternity in hell. There is no just, okay, no big deal anymore. It, It requires justice. But as we discussed last night, the reality of our depravity is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And so sin's mastery over us manifests itself practically kind of like the Stockholm Syndrome. In other words, we're infatuated with our captor. We're slaves to sin, but we're also in love with it. This is the case of every unregenerate person. They love the darkness more than light. This is the reality of slavery. Secondly, let's discuss rescue from slavery. So again, our text I want you to just notice, and, and sometimes I, I just, the ESV says Lord, but you probably know, Lord in all caps, it's the divine name, the covenant name, Yahweh, or some translate it as Jehovah. But this is so God centered. Listen to the passage again. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I Right, right. this is monergistic, right? <laughs> I will deliver you from slavery to them, I, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This passage shows us how God's plans to rescue Israel from Egypt is to display His great power. Look there at the text in verse 6. With an outstretched arm, with a mighty outstretched arm, His strong outstretched arm, God is going to bring judgment upon Israel's captors and He's going to display His power. I'm going to break up this point into four Subpoints about God that we see here first we see in this passage that God is period God is three times in this passage why does God keep saying that right why does God keep saying that what if I kept saying what if I said to you kept saying to you I am Alan right I am Alan I am Alan we get it bro <laughs> we get it right why is God saying this God is saying this because his delivery of his people from slavery is tied to his very essence. Three times in this passage he says, I am Yahweh. Do a study on that. Right? Yahweh is, he literally means I am. Right? I am, or or can be translated, I will be who I will be. The the, the point is that this shows us who God is, that that he's uncaused. That, that, that there, there was never a, a point in the, in, in the history of the, the world or whatever, eternity past, where, where God was not. And just, boom, then God comes and scene. no, God is eternal. He's uncaused. He's immutable. That means unchangeable. And he's awesome. Brother Randall rebuked me earlier today for using that word so cavalierly, awesome. We use it, I use it too cavalierly, right? This pizza's awesome, right? This game is awesome. It's pathetic, isn't it? Because God is awesome. You don't obtain true freedom, God is showing us here, by running from the Lord. That's what our society thinks. But by running to Him and trusting Him. We could spend sermons just on God's name here, but understand that God is, period, and who God is has a direct bearing upon what He does, and it has a direct bearing on why and how we are rescued from slavery. More on that in a minute. Secondly, God is, one, two, God speaks. Verse six says, say, say. Therefore, to the people of Israel, God speaks. God is a speaking God. And God desires that His word would be communicated. And it is a glorious thing tonight that God reveals Himself and His ways and what He desires of us in His word, in His speech. Certainly, God is not audibly speaking as He has audibly spoke there in um, in this passage. But if someone asks me, does God still speak today? What ought we to say? Yes! Yes, He speaks. How does He speak? He speaks to us in His Word. He's a speaking God and He reveals to us who He is and what He's done in His Word. Third, God promises. Philip Graham Reichen notes, and any of us could have picked this up, but there are seven I will statements here. Did you count them? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land, verse 8, that I swore to give Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. God promises. A couple things you could take away from this. First, what God promises to do, he will do. These promises are more sure than tomorrow's sunrise because his promises are tied to his essence. Can God do, I I trick my children if you know me a little bit, you kind of know I've got a a funny sign. So I, now my kids know this one now. But I play with my kids sometimes and say, can God do anything? Yes, daddy, God can do anything. Nope. He cannot lie. He cannot act contrary to his nature. And so his promises are sure he will do what he says. The other thing to consider here is that these promises are covenantal language. Verse 7, look at there. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. So there's more that's going on here than just not having to work anymore, right? Not having to work for the Egyptians anymore. God is, God speaks, God promises. Fourthly here, God acts. Now here I want to explore three of the words that God uses in his promises. So look at verse six. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So here's how God acts. One, he's going to bring them out. God is going to bring out Israel from under the burdens of of Egyptian slavery and into his own care. That's how he acts. Secondly, he's going to deliver. He's going to deliver them. John McKay notes that Natsal, that's the Hebrew word here, conveys the idea of snatching away from the grasp of another person or a situation of peril by exercising superior power. In this case, the Israelites will be given relief from the bondage of the slavery that had been imposed on them by the Egyptians. Illustration, you see two children. You see the older brother and the younger brother. The younger brother thinks that he's going to play with the older brother's toy. The older brother walks over, and because he's bigger and he's stronger, he snatches it out of his hand. And because God is bigger and stronger and holier and good and righteous, he's fixing to snatch Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. Thirdly, He'll bring them out. He'll deliver them. Thirdly, he acts. He's going to redeem them. He's going to redeem them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That is Gael, this Hebrew word that you may know from Ruth. Over and over it's mentioned. Boaz there is the kinsman redeemer. Here it's the idea of God claiming ownership over Israel, his firstborn son. Pharaoh does not own Israel. God does. And God will redeem them. So in these three words, God is acting by displaying his power over the Egyptians. You you don't bring out Israel and deliver Israel and redeem Israel. Look at Egypt. Historically, we might say this is one of the most powerful nations on earth during this time period. So you don't bring Israel out and deliver them and redeem them without a display of sovereign power. And this is what God does. By his mighty outstretched arm and by a sovereign grace of course all of this points us doesn't it can you not like taste this already like all of this points us to the greater redemption we have in Christ and in all the ways that God has rescued Israel from slavery he has rescued us from the slavery and tyranny of sin How has he done this? He's brought us out. He's delivered us. He's redeemed us. The text says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then look, with great acts of judgment. There's judgment in the new covenant as well. Because in the old covenant, God brought judgment upon Egypt. And through the judgment upon Egypt, God delivered his people. In the new covenant, God has brought judgment upon Christ and delivered his people. This is what we covered last night, but just a quick refresher, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Listen, you might say in Exodus because it's what the text says. You might say here in Exodus that God redeemed his people, delivered his people with a mighty outstretched arm. But on Calvary. God delivered his people with outstretched arms. God ultimately brought Israel out of Egypt with the final plague and the blood of the Lamb. And in the new covenant, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1-7, which we read, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. God brought the curses upon Egypt for their failures to love and honor and worship and obey God. And with that judgment, Israel is set free. For us, God cursed Christ on Calvary for our failures to love and honor and worship and obey God. And with this judgment, we are free. God displays His sovereign power and authority over sin by judging it in Christ and as a result, freeing His people from its terrible tyranny. Christ flings open the prison doors. He unlooses our chains. He sets us free. The Spirit gives us a new heart and new affections. The power of the triune God in the Gospel delivers His people from slavery to sin. And so there's never a time, if you're a believer, there's never a time that you sin that you say, I had to do that. No, you're free. We really are free. Listen, you don't have to click on that link. You don't have to click on it. You don't have to snap at your children. You don't have to fudge your numbers so that you get more money back from the IRS. You don't have to be the old person because he's dead. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Listen, glorious truths of justification I'm not preaching on that. Uh, and I'm not, but I'm not minimizing. Praise God for justification and forgiveness of sins. But you are also freed from the tyranny of sin. Sin has no more dominion over you. This brings me to my next point. The reality of slavery, rescue from slavery. Thirdly, we need to consider the replacement of slavery. Now listen very carefully here. Verse 8 says, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham. <coughs> Let me read that again with more emphasis. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Very, very important. Don't miss this. Do not miss this tonight. God is not only delivering his people from Egypt. Well, you're free. <laughs> Don't know what's going on now. I hope everything goes well, but I got you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. No. That's not what God is doing. He's not just delivering Israel from Egypt. He's also delivering them to Canaan. God is delivering them from one possession to another, ultimately that they might know him. Verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is the ultimate purpose of salvation. Right? Not your best life now. Not, 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 not that you would have health and wealth and prosperity. Not so that people would know your name. Right? Sometimes people get saved and, and then things actually get worse in the world for them. They're like, what's going on? Right? Or say, like, well, what's going on is that's not the purpose of salvation. Sometimes God does monetarily bless His people and bless His people with, with physical blessings. Praise God for that. But the purpose of salvation, the reason all these other things exist, justification, sanctification, the reason all these things, being free from the power of sin, they all exist for this one grand purpose. What is it? John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Now, when I say replacement of slavery, what I'm saying is that God's power delivers us from slavery, for sure. But it delivers us ultimately... From slavery to a new master, Christ. To make this point, we're going to flip over real quick to Romans 6, just real quick. I'm going to read it. I can't preach this message without reading Paul's position here from Romans 6. I should have had it marked. Maybe I do have it marked. No, that's Ephesians. Okay. No, that's the text from last night. Here we go. I can get there. Romans 6. Listen, listen. Romans six fifteen. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, were once slaves of, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. but The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, turn back to Exodus, but the point is here. Everybody's a slave. You are either tonight a slave of sin or you are a slave of Christ. And there is no other kind of person in this room. Slave of sin or slave of Christ. Christians were slaves of sin. Now we're slaves of God. Oh, but what a good and holy and kind and wonderful master is Christ our Lord. Slavery to Him is actually true freedom. Because Christ is the treasure, right? You don't come to Christ to get treasure. Christ is the treasure, And that's what we have in him. God delivers us from something, our sin, in order to deliver us to something. Israel cannot have the promised land by staying in Egypt. You've got to leave Egypt to get to Canaan. We're not freed from slavery for the sake of being freed from slavery. We're freed from slavery in order to gain a possession. And our possession is Christ, and also we are his possession as well. The goal of our being freed from sin slavery is to know God, to walk with Him in holiness, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Made a poor decision this afternoon. We went to Mardell, the bookstore. I don't have a problem with Mardell. It's fine. But I want to quote my lovely wife. You can... can, uh, Perhaps some of you that are talented enough can stitch this on a pillow. And I quote, There are a lot of stupid books here. Yep. (laughs) I'm not railing against you like, I go to Mardell every week and the preacher just slammed me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sometimes Christian bookstores are a cesspool of idolatry. Why? We don't understand salvation from sin. There's a lot of stupid books. Godless books. that are not talking about our freedom from sin. They're talking about how much self-worth you have. Right? How you can make more money. Right? How you can be popular. How people can like you. They don't understand the wretched condition that we were left in because of Adam's fall. We're left in, the catechism says, all men were left in a state of sin and misery. And now we're under this terrible bondage of slavery, and yet at the same time we enjoy it and we love it. So we're simultaneously in bondage to it, but we love it, and we hate God, and we're in enmity with God, and we're going our own way. And then Jesus stops us in our tracks, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want to share the gospel with us. Or we come to church for years, and, and, then, and then the Holy Spirit turns on the light. He hits us like a ton of bricks. And he, and, he, and he turns on the lights. He gives us a new heart. We come to Christ in faith. We repent of our sins, and we're free from sin. And we're like, this is wonderful, this is great. Throw all your books in the trash about how to make more money or to have a better truck or house or whatever because I'm free from my sin and I know Christ. I told you verse 7 was covenantal language and I trust completely Jonathan to deal with this tomorrow. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I'm not going to read that, but look at verse 7. Verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know, you shall know that I'm the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Oh man, in the old covenant, God brought Israel out of Egypt, but in the new covenant, God takes Egypt out of his people. God doesn't just take us Back to the garden where we're neutral. he says a... This is amazing. He says he takes our hearts and he writes his law on our hearts. Not only so that we know what he desires of us, so that we too desire what he desires. Again, this is absolutely key in order to not underappreciate the word salvation. God does save his people from wrath and hell. Amen, amen, amen. This is good news. This is glorious news. And I'm not in any way underemphasizing that. But salvation, what I'm saying is, goes even further than that. This is why it's like, hey, don't come up here, sign a card, and it's like, okay, I got my, I got my ticket to heaven. I'm saved from wrath and hell. And now I'm just going to go out and, and I'm going to still live under the tyranny of sin. That's baloney. God saves His people from wrath and hell for sure, but salvation is greater than that even. God saves us from not just the penalty of sin, but also the power. God bared His mighty right arm against the Egyptian and rescued His people from their clutches. But how much further has He gone in releasing His people from the clutches and captivity of sin? So you got passages all over the New Testament that say things like this: Titus two eleven through fourteen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous. For good works if you say tonight that god only saved you from the penalty of sin but not unto the zealousness of good works you've cut the power of the gospel in half and you mock god if you are here tonight and you say i partake the lord's supper and i sing these songs and and i read the bible and but then at night nobody's looking i go into my computer And I look at these degrading and horrific images. Listen, there is a serious chance you might not know God. God displays His sovereign power not just by delivering us from sin's penalty, but also His power. I'll quote a Methodist, Charles Wesley. (laughs) Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God has brought us out of the prison of sin and he set us upon the narrow path in order to follow him. Now, what does this say about the professing Christian that says, this is just how I am? In my first church as a pastor, I had to confront this lady and she was a terribly mean person. And I just said, look, a lot of things that her I'll call her Becky because her name is Becky. And so I say, Becky, why, you a lot of things you say is right, but you're just rude to people. That's just how I am. I'm an angry person. It's just how I am. I have a temper. God knows. I'm a homosexual. That's how I am. I just appreciate the beauty of women. That's how I am. I just have to provide for my family. I can't help but be unethical here. If you can't help but to sin, it sounds to me like you're still in prison. If, if, if It sounds like you're working the fields of Egypt while telling everybody that you're on the way to Canaan if you're still happily serving sin, then Christ is not your master. And you're not saved. And righteous judgment awaits you. The gospel is more powerful than our modern easy believism, I assure you. The gospel doesn't just punch your ticket to heaven. It punches sin in the mouth. It, it deals the death blow to sin's tyranny over God's people by delivering them from sin and unto righteousness because Christ has won the victory. And Christ, Jesus says Christ's sheep... My sheep hear my voice and follow me. You're not in Egypt anymore. Quit living like an Egyptian. You're free. Fourthly, finally, resisting slavery. So God says in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God did rescue his people from Egypt. (laughs) You know the story. But from the moment of them leaving Egypt, it seemed like everything tried to bring them back into bondage. Pharaoh himself, if you know, chased them after Israel had left. They chased Israel to try to put them again under tyranny. Keep reading. Balaam advised the women of Moab to entice Israel to adultery. Achan was tempted by gold. The list goes on and on and on. Israel was constantly tempted to subject themselves back to a yoke of slavery. But here's the reality. God did not rescue Israel from the Egyptians just so that they would be re-enslaved to the Hittites or the Amorites. They were to trust him and they were to do the necessary battles that he called them to do. Here's where I want to talk for a moment about the Christian doctrine of sanctification. Because the reality is all true believers, hear me, will fight sin till our dying day. We will all fight sin till our dying day. Just when I think I've conquered it, then I'm going to snap at my wife out of nowhere, it seems. Where did that come from? I'm still dealing with sin. I'm still fighting sin. We fight sin. It's always crouching at the door. It's always waiting. It's waiting for you to get tired. It's waiting for you to get lazy. It's waiting for you to lose focus. The Hivites are over here and the Moabites are over there and Pharaoh is, is breathing down our necks and there are giants in the land. But the doctrine of sanctification teaches us that our growth in the Lord is something that continues to happen over time. Hey, we aren't on Canaan shores yet. We're not in the glorified state yet. There still remains enemies that we must fight, but the gospel reminds us that the war has been won. So fight, fight fight in faith. Pharaoh's army may be following you, but there is a God who has fought for you and is fighting for you and who goes before you and who calls you to trust him. And what does Romans 6.14 say that we read earlier? Sin will have no dominion over you. The Father's plan and the Son's propitiation and the Spirit's power are all so perfectly accomplished that sin really has been defeated. It's not your master. Last night my exhortation to you was this. Live new. Tonight my exhortation is simple. Maybe you already guessed it. Live free. Live new, live free. Being free from the tyranny of sin doesn't mean we don't still fight Of course we do. You may say, I don't know if I'm a Christian because I'm always fighting sin. Good, good. Sin never sleeps. So we must be diligent to kill it. And the gospel reminds us that God has delivered us from slavery so that we can kill it. Listen, I'll put it plainly. If you're happily living in sin, death awaits you. If you're happily living in sin, death awaits you. But if you are fighting sin, repenting of sin, and by the Spirit of God putting sin to death, you are a Christian. The Israelites who failed to believe God never inherited the promised land. But those who trusted Him did, even though they had to go through the battles. Yeah, there's giants in the land, but God's already given you the sling and the stone that you need. Trust Him. Walk by faith. (laughs) You thought that the Christian life looks like June and Ward Cleaver. And sometimes it looks like Tom Hanks and Castaway when just lost his Wilson. You're in a fight. Randall won't get that, I know, but you're in a fight. You're in a fight. You're in a fight. But Christ has already given you the victory, so fight with faith. Man, there's so much more I want to say, but I gotta, I gotta be, like right before I got up here, Randall was like, "You gotta go shorter tonight," so I gotta, I gotta close it down. But let me say a few things real quick, because you remember what we said earlier: God is, God speaks, God promises, God acts. You, you know that that's that's some of our weapons in this battle. God is. This ought to remind us that God is the I am. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. He's holy. We ought to live in reverent fear of Him. We ought to. Fear God and nothing else. We, we ought to hate sin and not succumb to it because we fear God. God speaks. We ought to be in God's Word daily. We ought to be committed to the preaching of His Word and, and gathering with His saints and being devoted to the local church where we hear from God's Word together and seek to live out God's Word together. Because where God's Word is cherished, sin is not coddled, excused, or dismissed, but hated. We're talking about how do we fight sin. We remember that God is. We remember that God speaks. We remember that God promises. We ought to remember the precious promises of God, that God is for us in Christ. You don't understand the love that God has for you. We're united to Christ. The Spirit is within us. There's a crown of life waiting for us. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Keep fighting. Keep running. Lay aside every weight. Lay aside every every sin and keep running and keep running. And when you see a brother or sister who's down on the track and they're breathing hard, pick them up and help them. Don't kick them over and keep running. Help them. Help them. Go with them. Keep running and let's run together. Remember that God acts. Look to Jesus, the one who was crucified and resurrected for us. Our sins are atoned in him. We fight sin every day and too often, if we're honest, we capitulate. But in those moments, repent. Repent. Knowing that when we confess our sins to God, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, for Christ has already paid the price. Every day, sin is crouching at the door, waiting on you to submit. Run from it. Listen. I'll just conclude tonight by saying this to you. Christian, is worth it. Resist. Don't go back. Don't look back. Run with endurance. Keep looking to Christ. It's, it's worth it. Don't quit. Don't succumb again to the tyranny of which Christ has freed you from. You're not in Egypt anymore. May God purge any Egypt remaining in you tonight. Kill it all. Christ is king. Live free. And then I have one final exhortation closing everything. If you're an unbeliever, there's only one way out of sin's entanglement. There's only one way out of the judgment that awaits you that I promise will be sooner than you're ready for. And that way is Christ. The gospel has preached to you even before I got up here. We proclaim the Lord's death here. And he's risen again. You need to come to Christ in faith. Oh, how foolish and wicked would you be to hear the gospel tonight and not bow the knee to Christ.